Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Greetings and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a, pro-life, or a, a life training institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and today I have a special guest joining me. And I'm from the ocean Thanks for that. I, I take it by your reaction, you've heard the song? Yes. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, uh, you're, you're one guest that I've had that it's pretty difficult to find a song with your name in it. So uh, that was the song that I came across. That was actually the first time I'd ever heard it myself. So, uh, so there I don't you go. Know of any other, I don't know of any other Kelsey songs. So good job. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, Kelsey Hazard founded Secular Pro-Life in 2009 and serves as its president. Her writings appear regularly in pro-life media, and she is featured in the pro-life documentary, 40. Kelsey has also made appearances in mainstream news sources like NPR, BuzzFeed, and Slate. She is a graduate of the University of Miami with a BA in 2009, where she founded the school's pro-life student organization and the University of Virginia School of Law with a JD in 2012. Immediately following law school, she was selected for a Robert F. Kennedy Public Service Fellowship, which allowed her to devote a year to public interest work with Americans United for Life. She is now an attorney in private practice in Naples, Florida, and Kelsey is also on the Equal Rights Institute Board of Advisors. Uh, Kelsey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, Now, we're recording this show live, and so I'm going to be interacting with Kelsey for about a half hour or so, and then I'll open it up to callers. If there are no callers, I'll continue on with my questions. But if you have a question for Kelsey, you can call in at 646-668-8597. Once again, that number is 646-668-8597. To start us off here, I'd be interested to know uh, how you originally became pro-life. 
You know, it's funny. People always ask me that, and I'm always disappointed that I don't have a more exciting story. <laughs> you know, I'm <laughs> I am not. Um, you know, I'm not someone who at one time was a diehard abortion supporter and then saw the light mm-hmm. and switched sides. I don't have that kind of story. Right. Um, I've I've just always you know from from the age that I was able to understand what abortion was, I was vaguely pro-life. I could see that it was wrong, uh, but I didn't really get into the pro-life movement uh, until I arrived at college. Uh, and at that point, um, you know, I got to the University of Miami and I saw that there was a uh, student organization for Planned Parenthood and no pro-life organization. Uh, nationwide, that's unusual. Students for Life groups far outnumber pro-choice groups on college campuses. But at the University of Miami at the time, it was, it was an outlier. Uh, so I decided to start a pro-life student organization. <laughs> 18 years old, have no leadership experience, no idea what I'm doing, um, and just really started to educate myself. Uh, I took a prenatal development class for the psychology department. Um, I was mentored by people at Students for Life of America who were wonderful. Uh, yeah, and I just got more and more involved, and that's the story. Okay. And so when you started this this group at your college, uh, did that just sort of naturally lead into uh, starting your organization, Secular Pro-Life, or do you have, are there other reasons why you decided to get that organization off the ground? Yeah, it it was somewhat natural. I mean, um, the student organization I had at the University of Miami always took a secular approach, um, but it wasn't really until I attended my first March for Life uh, and saw um, sort of how that was covered in the media, saw all the crucifixes and this, that, and the other going down the street in Washington that I thought, wow, there really needs to be, uh, you know, I, I just saw a need for a secular uh, national organization that that's expressly secular. I mean, there there are certainly quite a few pro life organizations that take the secular approach, but they get sucked into um, the oh they're all religious uh, media trap. So I decided that let let's try doing something that is really explicitly secular. Um, and it was just a build it and they will come kind of situation where mm-hmm. it, soon, you know, it started out being very. Uh, very modest. Uh, one of the biggest needs that we saw at that time uh, was for uh, good pro-life literature, because one of the issues I'd experienced at uh, the college level was you would you know, want to order uh, literature on a particular subject, say prenatal development, and it would have you know, all this great information and photos. And then like on the backside, it would have that verse from Jeremiah. And you're like, Nuts! <laughs> now I can't. That's so close. This. this is so great. Um, right. It ruined. Uh, so it, it started out really just by putting free pamphlets mm-hmm. on the internet for download, uh, and grew so explosively from there. Uh, we are now eight years in, and I never could have dreamed how big it would get. Yeah. I am definitely a big supporter of uh, Secular Pro-Life. I think it's a, a, a great organization, a great thing that you're doing, because there is that stigma that you know, especially myself, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm white, I'm straight, I'm Christian. Uh, I, I fit most of the pro-life stereotypes. The only one I don't quite fit yet is being an old guy, uh, but that's coming, <laughs> obviously. So to have people who are in the movement and don't fit that stereotype is a great thing because you'll be able to reach the people that I'm not going to be able to reach. And so uh, I, I definitely think that that's an organization uh, and a, a principle that's worth supporting. So I'm, I'm great to, I'm glad that you're here. In the movement. I'm thankful, I'm thankful so. for your support. 
have you always been an atheist, or did you grow up religion uh, religious and eventually give it up when when you um, when you reached the a latter. certain age or heard an argument? The or? So I I actually okay. um, it's funny I was raised in the Methodist Church, um, which our listeners may or may not know officially is a pro-choice denomination uh, within um, the Protestant umbrella. Uh, So I never heard a sermon about abortion growing up. Mm. It was not part of my upbringing at all. Um, My parents were not pro-life activists. I mean, they gave me sort of a general set of values of sticking up for the little guy that I have kept with me and have right. applied uh, to my pro-life work. And they've been very supportive, but I didn't grow up like on the sidewalk outside the abortion centers or anything like that. Um, so I had, yeah, there, there was a time there, uh, you know, in college and maybe for a year or two after um, where I continued to uh, attend church. And so, you know, for that, it was kind of a limbo time where I was involved in pro-life advocacy technically in direct opposition to my church, <laughs> which um, yeah. you know, in retrospect probably was the cause of some cognitive dissonance. Um, mm. But it, it was a gradual process of, uh, of leaving church. So uh, I've, I've, I've been pretty solidly atheist for several years now. Um, but because my pro-life advocacy never had a religious basis to begin with, uh, it really mm. didn't affect um, the work that I was doing other than perhaps to make it easier to reach regular audiences. So would you say then that it was that, that not hearing the, the abortion related sermons in the church that you grew up with, was that sort of kind of the catalyst that kind of got you to give up the church or was it something else that kind of no, that spark? No, it was, it was unrelated really. I mean, um, yeah. it was, it, like I said, it was a very gradual process. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Cause uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a big advocate of education in the church, and especially doing you know pro-life sermons in the church. And so, you know, I I know that there's a, a great need there, and it 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 does uh, fill me with you know with, with disappointment that's that there are so many churches out there uh, who who don't you know teach on abortion, uh, you know, mm-hmm. because they're they're afraid of offending somebody or they're afraid that there might be someone post-abortive in their uh, congregation or something. But but there are ways to educate pastors and how to uh, overcome those those kinds of barriers. And so I'm definitely a big uh, advocate of education in the church, especially being a, a pro-life Christian myself. Um, the more the merrier. <laughs> I, right. Yeah. I, I'm certainly I'm certainly no expert on how to preach about abortion, but um, yeah, for sure I think you know different faith communities need to be working within their own spheres uh, to mm. um, to advance the pro-life cause and make abortion unthinkable within that population. Mm. Uh, and right. if enough groups do that, we can we can all come together and uh, see an end right. to abortion. So then, um, as an atheist, how do you ground your pro-life position? Well, I ground it. <laughs> I, you know, in all the years I've been in the pro-life movement, I've come to realize that most pro-life people have several reasons for being mm-hmm. pro-life. It's usually not just one thing. It's not the one sermon they heard one time. Uh, it, it brings together science and philosophy and personal experiences and friends you know who survived abortions or are post-abortive or all of these things are like a constellation uh, of of, um, Mm. mutually reinforcing reasons to be Uh, pro-life. So it is hard for me to say like what is your one reason for being Mm -hmm. Um, pro-life? I'd say like the initial reason uh, that got me in 
to the pro-life movement at first uh, was simply seeing the illogic of the pro-choice position, that all of the various uh, rationalizations being offered for why the fetus an inch away from the birth canal is totally worthless while the newborn is precious, yet the the various distinctions being offered um, if applied consistently across the board, would deny personhood to people with disabilities and conjoined twins and people in coma, like people outside the womb that they don't really intend to deny personhood to. Um, right. But when you try to have a consistency there, it quickly becomes clear that they aren't um, starting from a real principle and trying to be consistent. They are starting from wanting abortion to be moral and legal and trying to, after the fact, create some kind of justification. So that left me thoroughly unimpressed. Um, and I think the intro uh, to the podcast uh, ha- had a quote or two that you know, explained pretty well this idea that um, you know, I am the same person now that I was in the womb as an embryo. Uh, and certainly... I have changed over time in significant ways, but those are not morally significant ways. Uh, mm. So that's yeah. uh, that's sort of the initial reasoning that brought me uh, to the pro-life movement. Since then, I've educated myself on a lot of things. I really fell in love with the future like ours argument. Um, and I've also had a lot of these personal experiences. You know, it's hard to support abortion when you're friends with an abortion survivor. <laughs> you know? And, right, and yeah. all of these um, people I've got, been so privileged to, to meet and to know uh, through, through my years in the movement. Um, like I said, just meet all these mutually reinforcing. Um, and, you know, and, I, and I bring up both the logical side and the personal emotional side, because I think there is sort of a stereotype of atheists that we're all logic, that we're like Spock, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> right. my ears, are they pointy? Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I think you'd be foolish to suggest that there isn't an emotional component to the abortion debate. Of course yeah. there is. Yeah, I'm not going right. to be blind to that, uh, but it's not the only thing. So you're you're kind of the anti-Peter Singer then. You recognize that there's no <laughs> specific difference between infants or other people outside the womb, but instead of coming to the conclusion that we should support infanticide, you come to the conclusion that we should not support abortion, basically. Right, right. Okay. So then does personhood ever ever come into your equation of, of your, your pro-life argument? Or, and if so, uh, what in your view makes somebody a person? So I, I'm a lawyer, as you mentioned in the introduction. Um, personhood as a legal concept um, is not necessarily the same thing as a corporation can be a person. So having a legal background, I look at personhood a little differently um, than I think the average pro-life person does. Um, I, you know, my, my concern with his, taking the historical view separating the idea of personhood from the idea of humanity and saying you can be a human but not a person has never ended well. It never Mm, has. And in terms of creating a legal scheme that that results in equal protection of the law, um, as I said earlier, the the various pro-choice 
uh, distinctions for you know what constitutes a person versus not uh, are very subjective uh, and they're very poor legal standards. We don't have you know a, a, a uh, straightforward legal test for consciousness, for example. Um, right. And at some point, when you start talking to pro-choicers about this, they get ironically religious, and they, you know, essentially <laughs> right. what they're uh, what they're advocating for is something like the concept of a soul. Um, they mm. differ as to when they think the soul enters the body, um, but from a purely, you know, if we're going to have separation of church and state, that can't be uh, a legal basis for uh, when your human rights begin. Uh, so, if you are you from day one, <laughs> tracking right. that. Tracking that physical body uh, makes a lot more sense in terms of application of the law than trying mm-hmm. to track a soul or a quote-unquote personhood. Uh, right. So that's um, – I don't know if that quite answers your question. <laughs> but, well, um, it does. That, that's and my take. Yeah, it does. And, uh, you know, I'm not an academic philosopher, but I'm what you would call a philosophy nerd or uh, <laughs> an enthusiast or, you know, pick your, your adjective. But I'm very much in favor of making distinctions. And I think making the distinction between a legal person and a philosophical person is an important one uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, whatever your argument for, uh, whether or not someone is a, a person philosophically, that doesn't necessarily have any bearing on whether or not it's a person legally. And, and it's a person, just like the word murder, mm-hmm. person is a legal term, regardless of what you might think philosophically, there's a legal component. And so using the word person in a way other than it's intended legally can lead to uh, ar- you know, semantic arguments as opposed to keeping the conversation focused on the important issue in the pro-life slash abortion choice argument, which is what is the unborn? What, what, you know, what is that thing that we're wanting to kill? (laughs) Right. Okay. So then, yeah, you mentioned then that you, you are a lawyer uh, and you have a private practice in Naples, Florida, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't. I I belong to a private practice. It is not oh. my. <laughs> it is not okay. my private practice belonging to me. <laughs> oh, okay, gotcha. Uh, if, if if your 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 bosses happen to listen, I didn't mean anything by that. So uh, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> right. I'm not trying to get you, you know, uh, promoted against their will. So uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so what do you do then uh, as a lawyer? Like, what's your day to day routine like? It is completely unrelated to pro-life <laughs> advocacy. Uh, mostly yeah. I handle um, uh, civil litigation matters, uh, business disputes, uh, construction defect claims, things of that nature. Um, mm. So everything I do with secular pro-life is on a volunteer basis. It's like my okay. second unpaid job. And so about how much of your time then would you say is taken up by secular pro-life? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I'm not even going to try to guess. <laughs> it's, it's significant. So, so fairly, fairly big portion then. Okay. Cause yeah, cause I was looking through, you know, cause I, I do want to talk about uh, some of the projects that secular pro-life has going on uh, here in a few, a few minutes. And I was looking through that and just based on, uh, on everything that I've been looking through, it seems like you're, you're a very busy person. I'm and, you know, not just, yeah. I'm an yeah, extremely yeah, so, busy person, but I do have help. So. Okay, well, yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, because you, you do have uh, have others in the organization as well. About how many people would you say are official members of Secular Pro-Life? 
Uh, we don't really have a, an official membership system. Like people don't pay dues or anything like that. Um, we have a, a core group of like four of us who run things day to day. And our Facebook page, which is sort of our main mode of communication with our quote unquote members, uh, is mm. up to over 19,000 now. We're, we're, oh, wow. uh, we're coming in on 20,000. So, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's good that you that you have helped regarding that. Because aside from that, you also speak at at various uh, conferences and and things, which is uh, which I've noticed as well, which which is great. And so I'm I was just kind of curious, like how you would have time to take care of all this. So I'm glad that you know you have a kind of a core group that can take some of that the work off your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I could I definitely couldn't do it alone. Okay, so one of your one of your most recent projects that I'm aware of uh, is called Hello Hide. Could you uh, talk to us about that a little bit, kind of what Hello Hide is all about and what, what you're doing with the project? Absolutely. This is a project we launched uh, about a year ago now. Um, before, before I get into that, I need to explain uh, for those listeners who don't know what the Hyde Amendment is. This is spelled mm-hmm. H-Y-D-E. Um, the Hyde Amendment is named for uh, Representative Hyde, a member of Congress uh, some time ago. And uh, is his uh, was... first name Jekyll? No, no. Oh, Henry, okay. Henry Hyde. Oh, okay. Uh, he, <laughs> he, um, he, as I said, he was a member of Congress um, shortly after uh, Roe v. Wade was handed down. This was in 1976, so three years after. Okay. Um, and um, without any... Um, guidance to the contrary from the judiciary or any branch of government, Medicaid was funding abortions um, throughout the country and babies were dying on the taxpayer's dime, um, particularly uh, egregious because these were low income children and there was definitely a a shade of um, uh, eugenicism there. uh, And I can can get into what what, uh, Justice Ginsburg said about that. It was very disturbing. Um, But anyway, (laughs) so we had had this this issue with, um, you already know, Uh, we had this issue with with Medicaid funding abortions. And uh, there was legislation proposed uh, to uh, to terminate that funding. And uh, Hyde was the name sponsor. Uh, And that um, that was passed in 1976 for the first time. The the interesting thing about the Hyde Amendment is, as the name implies, it is a it is an amendment. It's not called the Hyde Act. It's the Hyde Amendment, and it is an amendment to the annual budget. So it has to be reenacted every year. And Every year since 1976, it has indeed passed as an amendment to the annual budget. That was uh, an area of common ground uh, mm-hmm. on uh, both sides of the aisle politically until very recently. Uh, and in this past election uh, cycle, the Democratic Party included a plank in its platform uh, to, uh, get to repeal the Hyde Amendment and resume funding of abortion uh, through Medicaid. Uh, That came after, uh, as you know, a wave of abortion facility closures. Uh, The abortion rate is down. It's getting a lot more competitive among these abortion businesses. So basically in an effort to drum up uh, more customers, uh, the Democratic Party embraced this idea Mm -hmm. of repealing the Hyde Amendment. Uh, Okay, um, real quick. 
uh, actually, I'm, I'm not familiar with what uh, Justice Ginsburg said. I was I was wondering if you could oh, maybe go into detail there. I'm oh, not. Okay. No. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, not like, is, it's not like it's not like too disturbing to go into, is it? Or uh, no, it's 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 okay. I mean, this is an abortion podcast, for heaven's sake. Right. Yeah, sure, um, sure. <laughs> no, this is yeah. this is actually she she was not on the court at the time, um, but mm. but sometime after the fact. Um, the Hyde Amendment was challenged in court by abortion lobby groups, as every pro-life law is. Uh, it went mm. to the Supreme Court, and it was upheld. Uh, and Justice Ginsburg's comment on it years later was she was surprised that the court did that because she thought the whole point of Roe v. Wade was to decrease populations there were too many of, or oh. something along those lines. I'm not quoting her exactly, mm. but you can find the right. quote, and it, I'm not far off. Uh, okay. So, so that was what Justice Ginsburg said. With all of that background on the Hyde <laughs> Amendment, um, uh, this past September of 2016 was the 40th anniversary of uh, the Hyde Amendment's first enactment in September of 1976. Um, and we, you know, I, I observed what uh, what a media circus the 40th anniversary of Roe v. Wade was. And I thought there could be something similar with the Hyde Amendment, um, particularly with abortion groups, you know, having it in the crosshairs. Um, And, um, you know, so many of the major pro-life organizations were in the midst of election season and really not devoting any resources to anything that wasn't the election. Uh, So it created um, it created this space that I thought secular pro-life could be of service uh, to, to the cause by taking up this 40th anniversary project. Um, and we were, we were preparing for this um, over a year, uh, even before the Democratic Party added that plank to its platform. Um, and so the Hello Hyde project, finally mm-hmm. I'm getting to telling you what the Hello Hyde project was. Um, yeah, no fun. <laughs> Hello, Hello Hyde project um, was what, what was and is uh, a group of people who were born through the Medicaid program since 1976, talking about the value of their lives and how thankful they are for the Hyde Amendment. Um, We partnered with the Charlotte Lozier Institute uh, to have uh, a white paper put out analyzing the impact of the Hyde Amendment uh, over the past 40 years. And what they found was that if you were born through Medicaid uh, in the past 40 years, um, the odds that the Hyde Amendment saved your life are one in nine, hmm. which is pretty startling. Um, right, so yeah. we had, you know, we had all, you know, we had this big group of people um, who um, who were born through Medicaid. They had uh, name tags that said "Hello Hyde." You know, the idea being to introduce these people to the American public. Um, and uh, obviously, there were more than nine of them. So as you scroll through the, through these photos on Twitter, you start to think, you know, who who would not be here today uh, if it wasn't for the Hyde Amendment. Um, so that was, in a nutshell, the project, um, was, was the social media photo project focusing on celebrating the lives of people uh, born through the Medicaid program and um, really putting them front and center because that's, that's who the Hyde Amendment is about. Um, and you the one of the reasons for that was you know, my you know as, as i observed the debate over the Hyde amendment i noticed that the pro life argument about that 
had a lot to do with taxpayer conscience, you know, that we shouldn't have to pay for abortion when we believe it's murder. Um, right. And that's, that's all well and good, but taxpayer consciences don't really warm my stone cold heart uh, <laughs> in the way that all these people walking around today because the Hyde Amendment do. Somehow uh, we kind of lost focus uh, on all of these people who have been saved by the Hyde Amendment. And part of that, I do think, was the absence of solid data uh, prior to the Charlotte Lozier paper. We had an idea that the Hyde Amendment was, was very impactful, but we hadn't quantified it um, mm. in a clear and concise way. Um, yeah. That paper, in addition to that one in nine statistic, um, gave us the total number of uh, people who are alive today because of the Hyde Amendment, and it's over two million. Uh, mm. As of last okay. year, so it's more now, yeah. um, and that was um, that was really eye-opening. And we were pushing, you know, by by taking this task on ourselves, um, and then just sort of handing it over to all these other pro-life organizations with a bow on it and saying, "Here's this project <laughs> we're doing. Use hashtag Hello Hide." Uh, and right. so many people jumped on that. So many organizations jumped on that um, from all religious backgrounds. It was really great to see. Um, you know, by doing that, we we hoped um, not only to to raise awareness of the positive impact of the Hyde Amendment on the 40th anniversary and to celebrate the 40th anniversary, um, but we also hoped to nudge the messaging in general. Uh, and on that, we very much succeeded. And I was um, I, I really got a taste for how well we succeeded um, when uh, at the, I was at the March for Life, of course, this last March for Life, 2017, right. January. Um, yeah. And I was having lunch in the congressional cafeteria while uh, the, the House was debating the No Taxpayer Funding of Abortion Act, um, which is essentially a bill to make the Hyde Amendment permanent so that it doesn't have to be renewed mm. year after year and we don't have to you know, be constantly defending it um, against uh, pro-abortion tax. Uh, yeah. So this No Taxpayer Funding for Abortion Act um, was being debated, and it was like on the little TV screens in the cafeteria. And there was Congressman Chris Smith with a big old poster board behind him that said, Two Million Lives Saved by the Hyde Amendment. Hmm. I have never met Representative Smith in my life. <laughs> and somehow, <laughs> this project he, he that got, I, you know, yeah, this project that I worked on, <laughs> right? This project that I worked on with a few mm. friends born through the yeah. Medicaid program. I was not born through the Medicaid program, but the um, we got we put together an advisory board uh, of mm. people who were and who um, yeah who who helped out with this. It was like four of us. Uh, <laughs> so this project yeah. that four of us were working on unpaid volunteers just um, organizing and working hard and we went on t you know we put all these photos out there on the internet and right. we had it on twitter we were really disappointed that we didn't get the hashtag trending we thought okay well we did something good and then suddenly it's in congress <laughs> so i don't know right. exactly how you trace that path but it was well, it was a sight to see yeah <laughs> I also was not born through the uh, Medicaid program myself. I was actually a wanted pregnancy, so I was kind of fortunate in that respect. Uh, my mom had lost one of her kids outside the womb, and she had miscarried three times before I was conceived, 
And so I was pretty much wanted. So, you know, I, I was never like in any danger of being aborted. Plus my dad worked in the military. And so he was not in the military when I, when mom was pregnant with me, but they still had insurance through his uh, being a veteran. So I, I wasn't actually born through, Medi- through Medicaid myself, but yeah, I, I can definitely see how the Hyde Amendment has been really beneficial. In fact, I, I hear people often say that, uh, you know, people will call themselves abortion survivors because of a statistic that says something like one in four people of our generation are missing because of abortion. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And so for, I, think, I think any, uh, yeah, any yeah. project that highlights that uh, would be great information. Yeah. You definitely know people who were born through the Medicaid mm-hmm. program. I know you do. Uh, we have mutual yeah. friends. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So then it, the, the reason we took this kind of statistical approach and sort of celebrating the lives of everyone who was born through Medicaid, including many who were very much wanted, um, right. was because it's hard to get someone to ask, hey, mom, if Uncle Sam were, filling, were footing the bill, would you have killed me? Like, that's not a conversation anybody's going to have or want to have. Right. Um, so you can have, an, you can have like, an educated guess of knowing that you're alive because of Hyde, but mm. it's hard to pin that down in any way other than just generalist, mm. general statistically. Right. Yeah, I can, see, I can definitely see how that would be uh, a difficult uh, thing to ask your, your parents. Yeah. So that was that's your Hello Hide project. Uh, you have another that's project. <laughs> yeah, I mean, are are you still doing like the hashtag uh, with Hello Hide? Is that like an ongoing thing, or so we, that kind of come to it? we we at the time anticipated that Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidency, and mm-hmm. that there was going to be a huge battle over the next for Hyde, and that this Hello Hide um, anniversary would just be a starting point to uh, keep the ball rolling over the next several years. Then, of course, <laughs> we all got a curveball and Donald Trump was elected. And right, yeah. we, you're, you're aware that I am not a huge fan of Donald Trump for a lot of reasons. Um, but his, his election did, in fact, uh, alleviate the immediate danger to the Hyde Amendment. Um, right. So um, it is kind of on the back burner at this point, um, but we haven't forgotten it. And okay. you know, to the extent that threats to the Hyde Amendment do arise, the machinery is there ready mm-hmm. to just flip the switch and go. Okay, yeah, I, I can see why that wouldn't be a, a priority right now. And yeah, um, I've, I'm not a, a Trump supporter either. I have a lot of, or and, and I mean, I, yeah, I'm not going to ask you how you voted or anything, but <laughs> I, I know that we have friends, uh, mutual friends in the pro-life movement who voted for Trump for no other mm-hmm. reason then that they wanted to keep uh, Hillary Clinton out of the White House. And I, I respect that decision. I think that's, you know, a re- reasonable thing to do. And mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned growing up Methodist. Well, it turns out that apparently the Methodists may get a new minister in Hillary Clinton. I, read I was recently that. reading. I, yeah. I have no comment on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someone I thought that, that was... me, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything <laughs> right. at all. Yeah. If you thought they were pro-choice before, <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait until she gets ordained through them. Yeah, they're actually. I, I um, oh, and I don't know how long ago this was now, um, but there was a a move in a positive direction where the Methodist Church left the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, um, yeah. but that did did not um, constitute an official change of stance across the board. Um, mm. So yeah. they they have a ways to go. Yeah. And I'm sure Hillary Clinton uh, will not 
help. <laughs> Probably not. No. <laughs> okay, so uh, another project that you have on your, your website is the Six Million Project. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that, that's another one that's um, kind of on the back burner right now. But essentially, if you are a pro-life atheist or agnostic, we want your picture. Mm-hmm. Um, because so often you know, they, people will say we don't exist or we're secret Christians or, oh, you're just <laughs> right. one person, you're, you know, you're one rando. Um, so showing that there is some strength in numbers. And the six million figure comes from um, you know, our, our analysis of some outside surveys from Gallup and Pew uh, that there are at least six million non-religious pro-lifers in the U.S., um, that's actually right. a pretty conservative estimate. We're probably closer to seven million now, um, okay. but the name has stuck. Uh, so, oh, right. um, yes, it, you can go to our website. Um, there's a tab for the uh, for six million project. You can just take a picture of yourself uh, saying that you're one of the six million, uh, and we'll put your picture online. Mm. That's that's a that's a pretty simple, straightforward project. I don't have a, a long, mm. convoluted story about that one. <laughs> No, that's fine. Yeah, no, I, I think it's again. I think it's great to you know to, to get the the word out that there are non-religious people who are in the pro-life movement. And I always thought that was kind of humorous that you know you'll hear atheists, especially when you're talking to them about the existence of God or religion, that kind of thing, and they'll they'll be very adamant that they're a free thinker, that they think for themselves, and that they stick to logic and and uh, reason and not superstition. But then when you tell them that there are pro-life atheists, then all of a sudden uh, they start thinking that well, these are obviously just secret Christians in disguise. <laughs> that there couldn't possibly be atheists who who are also pro-life, and so that that always kind of struck me as an amusing little little bit of uh, dissonance there regarding their their yeah, beliefs. Well, that's a- it's it's between like 15 and 20 percent uh, of non-religious people who will who will say that they are pro-life. And I, note, note that I note the way that I phrase that because they'll say they are pro-life to a pollster. I think mm. the real number is higher. Uh, but there, yeah. again, there's the stigma of like, oh, if I say I'm pro-life, then like that's that's a religious right thing. I'm not. Jerry Falwell, so I guess I'm not pro-life. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> right. it, it is kind of silly, um, you. Know, from your point of view, but if you aren't, if you aren't someone who's been um, kind of mm. living this issue day in and day out, you have a right. very abbreviated kind of media driven understanding. That's a reasonable conclusion to reach. Um, mm. So, you know, yeah, and that. this, this speaks to polling more generally, not just, um, not just for atheists, but the, the, are you pro-life versus are you pro-choice question is of really limited utility because you can look at the same survey and you'll get, you know, roughly half and half pro-life, pro-choice. But then as you look into like the more specific questions, like um, you'll find like overwhelming majorities opposed to abortion after the first trimester, uh, opposed to abortion, um, except in the case of rape, like all, you know, these, these positions that, significantly restrict abortion from you know ver- versus the abortion on demand regime that we have currently um and yet they'll, they'll call themselves pro-choice you know, they're they're espousing something that right. planned parenthood or NARAL would call them bigots for and yet they, right. and yet they um, they consider themselves pro-choice so there's definitely a schism between mm-hmm. the pro-choice leadership versus the rank and file and i think the rank and file in a lot of cases just aren't paying attention and don't realize what's being promoted in their name 
Yeah, and I guess that could just be a bit of uh, informational bias on my part, too, that I interact with and work around non-religious pro-life people. So to me, it's just obvious. Yeah, of course, there, there can be <laughs> you know, atheists who are pro-life. I, I know several. So, yeah, right. that, that could just be the, the bias on my part that, uh, you know, understand the other side of the coin, essentially. Well, it's, yeah, um, it's the availability heuristic. Uh, and so right. that, that's yeah. why it's important um, to increase the visibility of of uh, secular pro-lifers and non-traditional, quote-unquote, uh, pro-lifers more generally. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so then another, ho- hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll keep going down the list and see if we can hit up on a, on a project that you have going right now that's not on the back burner. Um, oh, sure. So, well, I can, tell you uh, what our, I can tell you what our current project is. Um, well, sure. Let me go and, I have one more here on the list. So let's go ahead and hit up this one real quick, and then we can talk about the other projects that you currently have going, if that's all right. Okay, okay. Okay, so there's one here that was called uh, Prevent Preterm. Yes. Okay. Uh, Prevent Preterm, I'm really proud of. Um, okay, cool. This is, we, we got this launched a couple years ago, um, and it's just an ongoing uh, educational effort online um, mm. where uh, it compiles some of the medical literature uh, showing that having an abortion is a risk factor for premature birth and a subsequent pregnancy. Uh, the, the research on this is really strong. There's over 100 studies in multiple countries accounting for all kinds of uh, potential uh, confounding variables. Uh, people have found this link when they were looking at other things, uh, which is a pretty good indicator that this isn't caused by pro- pro-life bias. Um, so, the, I mean, when you put it all together, the evidence is really overwhelming for this link. Uh, and, you know, compared to, say, the breast cancer link, which has just been so controversial and, you know, studies and counter studies and people pointing their fingers, shouting liar, liar, liar mm-hmm. on the preterm link there really hasn't been much of that because the evidence is so strongly on our side. They just don't want to talk about it. So we wanted to elevate uh, that research and we've put it together in a way that is medically accurate, but still presented in a way that a scared 16 year old can understand it. Um, So, you know, having that balance, I don't want to say it's dumbed down, but it's presented in a way that lay people can get, um, you know, we worked with, um, obviously with medical people to put it together, but I don't have a medical background. So I was sort of, I was like, okay, you make, let's, I, I, I don't get this, break this down into its components. Um, uh, so we, we put together a really great, um, website on that. And it also contains some information about other preventable factors, um, like, nicotine use, uh, like lack of prenatal care. We point people to pregnancy centers where they can get that care. Um, so it's not purely about the uh, abortion preterm link, but it's just about preventable uh, causes of premature birth. Because in a lot of cases, we don't know what causes premature birth. It often isn't preventable. But mm. we can at least take a start with, with what we do know and put that into practice to prevent as many premature births as we can. Uh, and abortion is, is a big one. Now, obviously, there are some statistics regarding abortion and the dangers of abortion that are still considered controversial, such as is there a link between getting an abortion and, and having breast cancer later on? Is there a link between, you know, abortion and deaths re- related to abortion? You know, all of these, and, you know, Mental how, health how, too, yeah. Yeah. 
mental health or how, how, how early or late in the pregnancy does the developing fetus actually feel pain, all of these mm-hmm. things which are still considered controversial. So you would say then that the link between abortion and having a preterm is child the is, least controversial on that list. Okay, and so which so, is so definitely then, the reason it's least talked about. <laughs> right. Okay. So so then that that leads to my next question is just people who support abortion rights like to paint themselves as pro-choice, and yet often it seems like they're they're not really for the choice; they're more just for the abortion. And so mm-hmm. my my thought is, and I'd like to maybe get your thoughts on this, is if the link between abortion and having a preterm child is so uncontroversial and so well supported medically, then why wouldn't pro-choice people talk about this and let them know that there is this danger, there is this risk, rather, maybe they wouldn't frame it as like a danger, mm-hmm. but there is this risk of having a preterm baby later on. Why, why wouldn't they promote this for the sake of fully informing a woman who goes in for an abortion? What, what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on, on why they would want, you know, not want to talk about this kind of thing? I think it gets, I think it goes back to the divide between pro-choice leadership and rank and file. Um, because mm-hmm. again, if you look at some of the polling, people who call themselves pro-choice, support informed consent laws. Um, Mm. It really is the upper echelon profit-driven part of the abortion lobby that Mm. has a problem with this. Rank and file pro-choice people just don't know. Like if we're, if we're not talking about the preacher preterm birth link, they're definitely not going to hear about it from Planned Parenthood. Um, So they don't, they may not even know it's an issue. Yeah. I I try Mm. not to, um, assume bad motives when people probably just don't know. Um, So uh, I think, I think it really does depend on who you're talking about at a certain level in the hierarchy. Yeah. They have to know, but I think the average pro-choice person, this is an area of common ground. So what are some of the other projects that SPL has going? Uh, So speaking of common ground, uh, we have Mm -hmm. a project right now called fund women's health. Um, And you can find it at fundwomenshealth.com, or if you go to Secular Pro-Life's website, which is secularprolife.org, it's featured on our homepage. Um, This project is a pro-life fundraiser for federally qualified health centers. If you've been paying any attention to the debate about defunding Planned Parenthood, um, pro-life organizations and individuals have been pointing to federally qualified health centers uh, and community centers uh, as the alternative to Planned Parenthood. They receive taxpayer funding. Uh, they serve low-income women, regardless of ability to pay, uh, and they do not do abortions. So they are the, the nonviolent version of Planned Parenthood. And many of them, right. in addition to reproductive health care, uh, also pri- provide you know, primary care, uh, pediatric care, uh, and general family practice care. Uh, so they're really awesome. And what we wanted to do was as a pro-life movement, you know, and this project got started uh, several months ago when the prospects for defunding Planned Parenthood in this congressional session looked brighter. Uh, They are less bright now, Uh, but regardless, you know, we, we want to divert Planned Parenthood's funding to these organizations. That's the ultimate goal. But even before that occurs, there's nothing to stop us from diverting some of our funds to these organizations (laughs) to build them up and help them become more competitive um, against against Planned Parenthood, even if that's not necessarily their mission. um, That's that's what we we want to see and uh, make sure that women have uh, nonviolent health care available to them 
um, either free of charge or affordably. Uh, so that is what Fun Women's Health is about. It's just a, a list of places uh, that you that we've looked up that have um, that have good women's health care programs, uh, and you can just donate to them right then and there from your computer. Uh, and we encourage you to do so. Uh, that that is Women's Health uh, Fund Women's Health in a nutshell. We want to uh, put our money where our mouths are. <laughs> well, great. Yeah, definitely something excellent to to support. You know, because you're you are a lawyer. I'm not sure. If this is something that would necessarily be be in your wheelhouse, but how would we then get legislation through to defund Planned Parenthood? I know they tried, the Republicans have tried mm-hmm. with their alternative to Obamacare, but that move failed. And so how then, without trying to uh, overhaul health care or something, how then would, mm-hmm. would the legislators be able to get a bill through that would then defund Planned Parenthood? So there are definitely many people who are more qualified to answer this question than I am. And I hope you will re-ask it when you interview one of those people, um, maybe someone <laughs> yeah. from American United for Life or the Susan B. Anthony List or, or some of those other um, lobbying groups. Um, okay. my, the general understanding, and this is going to be like elementary school level understanding. Of, oh. of, uh, <laughs> Probably how, how still more, more than my understanding. So, um, Is we have 50 votes in the Senate for pro-life legislation, 50 out of 100, and then Vice President Prince would be the tiebreaker at 51. However, most acts of legislation can't get through the Senate with with just a majority. You have to have 60 votes because of um, um, it's really just a tradition that's been going on. Very, but the Senate is extremely traditional and extremely reluctant to break with tradition. It's not something that's in the Constitution that things have to pass the Senate with 60 votes, um, but it's it's a longstanding Senate tradition. And it's one that uh, people are very reluctant to blow up because they know that in the next election, maybe they'll be the minority party um, and they yeah. want the opportunity to, to block bad legislation uh, with less than the majority. So um, there are certain types of legislation that can get through the Senate uh, on a bare majority of 50 votes plus Vice President Pence, um, but they have to be. It's, and this, this is the part where I get fuzzy. But the, it's mm-hmm. there, there's a complex set of rules that determines when that applies and when it doesn't. And the general general rule is that it has to be more budget related than policy related to get through on just 51. Uh, and okay, and so a and bill. And the question is, so, so with the health care bill, there was a general consensus that that was so budget related that there was a good chance it would be just a majority in the Senate to get it through and not need 60. And I think that's why the Planned Parenthood defunding was attached to the health care stuff, even though mm-hmm. they're different issues and the repeal of Obamacare raised a lot of pro-life concern, particularly on maternity coverage. So it was a really weird pairing, but they were doing it because of this um, congressional procedure. Um, And of course, when, when that tank Planned Parenthood defunding went down with it. And the question is whether we could do a separate um, Planned Parenthood defunding law and get it through the Senate 
without needing 60. And that is not clear. I think, I think people are, are worried the answer is no. Uh, and that is why we are at the standstill that we're at. And the bottom line is that we would either need to blow up the 60 vote rule, which as I said earlier, Republicans are very hesitant to do. Um, right. Although they did, they did do it um, with respect to votes on the federal courts uh, for, for, um, for the appointment of judges, but that was a very limited carve out just for judges. Um, So that, so it's gone for that, but uh, for regular legislation, they do want to keep it. Uh, And if that's going to be the case, then the only way we can defund Planned Parenthood is to get 60 votes in the Senate and get, you know, hustle out there and start um, replacing pro-abortion senators with pro-life ones. And I know that Susan the Anthony list already had, has field workers out for 2018. Yeah. Um, which is really impressive. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So that, so, um, like, like I said, it's not, it's not entirely my wheelhouse. Um, I know I haven't said anything that's inaccurate, but I definitely haven't given you the whole story <laughs> because it is okay. very complicated. Yeah. Uh, no, no worries. So yeah, I can maybe see about in the future having someone from, you know, Americans United for Life or Susan B. Anthony List or someone come in and talk about that as well. So then that was your Fun Women's Health program. Do you have any other programs that are currently being supported? Or So we have, you know, you know I, I talk about discrete projects, but then there's the things that we're doing all the time. Uh, we have our blog, which publishes multiple times a week. You're well aware of this because you've been a guest author. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Um, sometimes that's just talking about general pro-life arguments or philosophy. Sometimes it's responding to specific news stories that are, uh, that require some kind of pro-life rebuttal. Uh, sometimes it's just keeping people apprised of things that are happening. Um, we uh, do presentations on college campuses, which is really important. Um, secular pro-life is extremely youth-based. We do have some older supporters, but in general, it's a millennial endeavor um, because when you look at the demographics, uh, I'm sure you've heard the phrase pro-life generation. Uh, to describe mm-hmm. yeah. millennials, we're also the least religious generation since Roe v. Wade. And yeah. the secular pro-life movement kind of arises out of that convergence. Just statistically speaking, most secular pro-lifers are going to be young. Not all, mm-hmm. but most. Uh, so we, right. do, um, we, we give presentations on college campuses. We're invited by uh, pro-life student organizations. Um, that's one of our big outreaches. Uh, we do presentations both live and via Skype uh, throughout the year. Uh, we also have a presence at the March for Life in D.C. and the Walk for Life in San Francisco, uh, and we do educational work at conferences, um, pro- pro-life conferences where we help other pro-life organizations um, set themselves up in a way that they can reach out to secular people and not just be the Catholic group or the evangelical group or whatever rut they may have gotten themselves into over the years. I mean, it commonly happens. Uh, so... Those kinds of things we're doing day in, day out uh, over, over the course of the year. And that's, that's sort of our core uh, advocacy. And then on, we, we pile projects on top of that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, so uh, we're coming up now to about our halfway point. And so just to kind of reiterate here, if you're sitting there listening to this presentation, kind of kind of twiddling your thumbs and you're thinking, man, I, I really wish I could be part of this conversation. Well, you can. Uh, you can call in if you have questions for Kelsey. Uh, the number is 646-668-8597. Once again, that number is 646-668-8597.
well, before okay. we um, b- before we get any callers, uh, someone had left a comment um, when I advertised this podcast. Um, someone okay. left a comment with a question. I'm pulling that up now. Um, sure. This is from Kristen. Um, actually, she has two questions. So her first question is, do you have any activist tips for spreading the word of this side of the pro-life movement? Like I do a little bit of chalk activism and putting business cards with non-stereotypical pro-life orgs around. But if you have any other ideas, I'm all ears. Uh, Kristen, that's awesome that you're talking for us and putting out business cards for us. I think that's amazing. Uh, highly, highly recommend that you keep doing that. Um, and I would add that social media is so... I don't think that the pro-life movement, certainly not the youth movement or the secular movement, um, would be nearly as vibrant to, uh, as it is without the Internet. Uh, I don't think secular pro-life could have, could have come into being without the Internet because we are so uh, scattered all over the country and in some cases in other countries. Uh, so the, the social media aspect of this is really important um, Traditional news media has been declining in influence uh, as people can get sort of direct from the source information online. Uh, And there are certainly positive and negative aspects to that phenomenon. Uh, But that has been really positive for us because we can break through the stereotypes and meet people one-on-one and they can see for themselves who we really are um, without relying on a media. So uh, that's, that's definitely key for, um, uh, in addition to being out on the street chalking and dropping business cards. I think the online realm is, uh, is definitely a, a vast opportunity for us. Um, uh, another question that she had was, have you seen any progress with our side of the pro-life movement gaining more attention or being taken more seriously by the media slash pro-choicers as a whole slash stereotypical pro-lifers? Uh, <laughs> yes, definitely yes. So um, I think I do think the the media and pro-choice organizations have noticed us. They're not sure what to do with us. I don't. They um, they. They find us a little threatening. They'd find us more threatening if we had more money, but that's another, <laughs> another <laughs> right, yeah. matter. Uh, yeah, we've gotten some really um, fair media coverage in places like Slate and NPR. Um, and I, I, I just want to keep encouraging that trend for sure. Um, if you're out um, at a rally or out you know, do, doing whatever advocacy you're doing and there's a chance that you might run into a reporter, think about what you want to say. Think about the organizations you want to point that reporter to. Um, you know, be, be prepared so uh, you don't get the deer in the headlights because they can't really use deer in the headlights in a story. <laughs> make sure you make the most of that. <laughs> Uh, opportunity because there is there is definitely a possibility uh, that you will be asked questions from uh, from media. Um, another question is: Do you know of any other nonprofit organizations specifically for atheist, agnostic, non-religious pro-lifers uh, besides secular pro-life and pro-life humanists? Uh, those are definitely the two big ones. Um, they there are some. Uh, other Facebook groups and pages that are sort of for mutual support. Uh, I don't know so much that they're doing um, pro-life projects uh, in in the world, um, 
So Seth Kuro, pro-life and pro-life humanists are, are definitely the two big ones. Pro-life humanists um, is uh, a good friend of ours. They uh, are based in Canada. So the work they do is similar to ours, but they're up in Canada. And they also uh, focus a lot more on going to atheist conventions and uh, bringing the pro-life message there. Uh, so that's, that's the, the, the two big differences between us and pro-life humanists. Um, but in terms of other pro-life um, nonprofit organizations, there, there are a lot that, while not specifically for non-religious pro-lifers, are friendly to uh, non-religious pro-lifers. Um, and you know, partic- particularly, um, oh, you know what I wanted to, I'm sorry. I should have mentioned, no. um, I should have mentioned abortion changes you. Um, that is probably my favorite post-abortion group because they are very secular friendly. Um, Silent No More and Rachel's Vineyard um, have been around for a long time and they've helped a lot of women find healing and they are expressly religious. Uh, so if you're looking for post-abortion groups uh, that uh, don't have that leaning, um, Abortion Changes You is a really good resource. Um, yeah. Do we have any callers? Uh, no, not at the moment. So we can go not ahead and, and continue on. Um, <laughs> Teresa, my co-admin, asks me, why are you so dope? Thank you, Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I wish I knew. I, I can't reveal my secrets. Quentin, <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I keep a list here. Uh, you know, sometimes I get callers, sometimes I don't. Uh, if I don't, I, I make sure to have a list big enough to continue the conversation just in case. So, yeah, okay. I definitely have, have more here. So are, are you, have you exhausted then all the questions that, that you received? Yes, yes, those, those were the questions on, the, on Facebook. Okay, so then let's go ahead and switch gears. Or unless there, is there, are there any other projects that you wanted to talk about real quick? Uh, I think we set up the quick ones, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so then let's go ahead and switch gears a little bit. And uh, I was hoping to get your thoughts uh, as, as a lawyer yourself um, on some of the uh, some of the important legislative uh, decisions that have come down regarding abortion. We can go ahead and start with the with the with the mother of all abortion laws, uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, <laughs> yeah, which, which Did you mean to kind be of the, yeah. okay. Oh no 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 uh, pun pun <laughs> the not intended. Mother of all abortion decisions. <laughs> right yeah uh, <laughs> pun not intended. That was just a happy accident. Um, <laughs> Well, okay, maybe that could be seen as an abortion fun too. I don't know. Um, okay, I, I better I better stop before I before I uh, really get lost here. Um, <laughs> yeah, if, if you're religious, pray for my salvation right now. Um, so. All right, Roe v. Wade. What what do you have questions yeah. about on Roe v. Wade? Okay, well, no, it's just I, I was hoping maybe you could just uh, just talk a little bit about Roe v. Wade because even though leading up to Roe v. Wade, some of the states had started to liberalize their abortion laws. Uh, but Roe v. Wade was really the the legislative decision that really legalized abortion across the board. What were some of the um, I, I guess what were some of the arguments that went into uh, to the decision then to legalize you know legalize abortion nationally as opposed to leaving it up sure. to the state's discretion? Sure. Um, yeah, as a non-religious person, one thing that really stands out at me in the Roe v. Wade opinion is there's this section um, where they're um, try- trying to make the person versus human distinction, and they go into this completely irrelevant tangent about what different groups have 
thought over time about the personhood of an unborn child. So they're like, well, the ancient Greeks, this, that, and the other, and the, and, and you know, like different different religious groups and what, and then they're like, and the Catholics say uh, say that life begins at fertilization, along with some scientists. <laughs> like none of those opinions matter except for the scientists. <laughs> right. We, again, separation of church and state and. It, it, I mean, it boggles my mind. Like, I don't know of any church-state separation groups that have called out that portion of Roe v. Wade, which makes me really sad. Um, yeah, you know, but... uh, that, that that portion of Roe v. Wade has always kind of struck me as as odd, uh, you know, aside from poorly reasoned, but just odd itself, because no one would accept the reasoning that philosophers, scientists, and theologians have all differed on the age of the earth. And so we're not going to take a stance on that. So we're going to allow, right. you know, young earth creationism to be taught as science in schools. Right, they uh, you didn't know, the, fall into that trap on the young earth, earth creationism. Right. Cases, but they, and so, the, so it, 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 it yeah. does, um, it does the kind of, um, it, it, it's a stain on the court. It's it's very very clearly starting from the conclusion they want and trying to find a rationalization. It is right. not well reasoned. It is not principled, and uh, I think that's a big part of the reason why Roe v. Wade uh, remains so controversial over 40 years later. Um, so that's, yeah, that's fact, one thing that definitely stands out at me uh, about Roe. Yeah, in fact, even uh, even abortion choice writers have said this decision was just was just very really. Poorly reasoned. There's no, yeah, you know, they, they, they really clearly just invented a right to abortion by looking at the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, penumbras. this is something that I. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I just said penumbras. Like that. Oh, there's not right. A penumbra. What are you talking about? Um, well, right. yeah. If you if yeah. you want a really really in depth look at this, I cannot recommend enough the book uh, Abuse of Discretion. It's by Clark Forsyth, who's at AUL. Uh, and full disclosure, I know him because I was a fellow at AUL for a year after law school, um, but okay. he has done just a fantastic job of delving into the primary source documents from the late 60s and early 70s and tracing what went wrong. Uh, so I, I cannot do that book justice. I can't give you a summary. You just have to read it. Okay. Yeah. That's actually one that I have not read. So I, I wrote it down. I'll, I'll pick it up and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes too. If uh, anyone listening would be interested in, uh, checking that book out too. Uh, I'm actually reading a book right now by our recent Supreme Court Justice Inclusion, Neil Gorsuch, on mm-hmm. the history of euthanasia and assisted suicide, because I'm going to mm-hmm. be debating that topic with uh, with Matt Dillahunty here in a, in a little less than a month in Texas. Okay, uh, very cool. So, yeah, I ha- I haven't read that. I've heard that it's really interesting. Um, it is. But... Yeah, and of course I, I debated I debated uh, Dillahunty once before. Uh, on abortion, so it's it's fitting that I would then debate him on on end of life issues since we've already tackled uh, beginning of life issues. Mm-hmm. One thing that that I hear constantly regarding regarding Roe v. Wade because they you know they they grounded a right to abortion in a, a right to privacy, and mm-hmm. they they essentially you know just Justice uh, Blackman and the six other justices who who voted in favor of it yeah you, know, you know like you said they they were wanting to legalize abortion and so they were find, trying to find excuses to do that and one of the ways mm-hmm. that they did that is by actually redefining the concept of person in the constitution because the mm-hmm. 14th amendment which they which they grounded that in had been ratified like 100 years prior to that and so for all of the 100 years leading up to that the fetus had always been seen as a as a legal person and right. so yeah, so it, it just seems to me that 
like you like you were saying, there were just activist judges wanting to legalize abortion and trying to find any uh, any reason to do so. Yeah, and it was interesting too because they they were trying to make the argument that fetuses weren't included in the popular conception of person at the time the 14th Amendment was uh, was enacted, um, which is which is interesting for two reasons. One, they didn't have sonograms in the 1800s, so who cares? <laughs> and right. second, um, liberal justices usually aren't known for pursuing originalist interpretations. <laughs> right. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. This this idea that we have to we have to decide what that meant at the time it was enacted is something they would never otherwise do. Um, right. I think they have it wrong, uh, at, you know, as we said before, yeah. but funny that they would even try. <laughs> Uh, and yeah. that really just goes to show what an aberration it was. Yeah, in fact, uh, one one book that I have read, which I, I actually learned about from you, was "Dispelling the Myths of Abortion History" by Joseph De La Pena. Mm. And uh, yeah, yeah, that that book that book was pretty expensive. I, I had to save up for a little while in order to to afford that book, but I do have it on my bookshelf. And it's an extremely uh, academic book. I have not read it cover to cover. I've read bits and pieces pieces of it like in a library um, okay but yeah uh, what, what i have read is really good <laughs> yeah uh, i i have read it uh cover to cover uh it's not it, it's over a thousand pages long but it's not as bad as it seems because most of it is uh footnotes yeah and there there are there are massive massive amounts of footnotes so some pages will have like maybe three lines of text and the rest is just all footnotes so, so it's not as it's not as difficult to read as you might think, being you know a thousand pages long. But yeah, and, and this is uh, actually one one of the things that he talks about too, is, is that people will, would say that abortion was only illegal to protect the safety, the health of, of the pregnant woman, when in fact De La Pena talks about that no, it was actually illegal to protect the natural rights of the fetus, which was considered to be a person at that time mm-hmm. as well. And so they they weren't just relying on a bad definition of person, but they all they were also relying on on bad history uh, mm-hmm. by a particular uh, historian who who basically just revised history. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm blanking on the guy's name right now, but yeah, it, it, it's it's in that book as well. And so that's, yeah, and yeah. I think I think abuse of discretion touches on it too. Oh yeah, yeah, that could be. Yeah, so good read, but expensive. So yeah, if you can find mm-hmm. it in a library, then by all means, uh, look for that. But but unless you're actually trying to make pro-life activism a vocation, I doubt you'd be able to justify buying it. So, okay, so then Roe v. Wade, and then the sister case that we often talk about that goes along with it is Doe v. Bolton. And mm-hmm. it always struck me as, I, I guess it was just a coincidence that Doe v. Bolton and Roe v. Wade were decided on the same day. I don't think the two cases were really connected in any in any way, were they? Um, I I know that they. I, I think they had some connection between. I'm I'm not entirely sure okay. to be honest. I mean, they came out of different yeah. states. I know that Roe v. Wade was out of Texas and Doe v. Bolton, I believe, was out of Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. But I know the court, you know took both cases up in the same term, um, knowing yeah. that they were both abortion cases, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, yeah. know, it, it, it does sometimes happen that a court will take multiple cases on the same issue at once, and mm-hmm. that's usually an indication okay. that they plan to do something on that issue. Um, so, to, you know, they, they whether or not they are factually related, they cross-reference each other. Uh, And and as you mentioned, they were decided at the same time. Uh, And Dovey Bolton is uh, less well-known, even in pro-life circles sometimes. Uh, It is the companion case is what we would call it. Uh, And 
in Roe v. Wade, um, you got this decision that um, in the earlier uh, period of pregnancy, uh, abortion can only be regulated or banned in the interest of the mother's health. And then in Doe, they go and define health in a way that no sane person would define health. <laughs> um, right. it, health basically means she wants an abortion. Uh, yeah. So in effect, when those two cases are read together, you have abortion on demand. Uh, mm. that, ha- that changed somewhat in the next case, Casey, which I think we're going to talk about uh, subsequent to this. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's but that, 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 that expansive definition of health is still a problem. And Roe v. Wade also established the trimester framework, right? Right, which has since been abandoned, but yes. Oh, it, oh okay. Oh, was it abandoned in Casey? Pretty much. I mean, so the, the okay. trimester framework originally was basically a prohibition on doing anything pro-life in the first trimester, whereas mm-hmm. in Casey, they're like, okay, yes, you can have informed consent in the first trimester. You can have parental consent in the first trimester. So they, they did um, – they, they did um, back off from the strict trimester framework, um, but they were okay. definitely legislating. <laughs> right. They yeah. Cause you, amended you, their legislation. Yeah. Cause you, you still have people talking about uh, abortion in terms of the trimester framework that, you know, yeah, yeah I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pro-choice, but I, I only in the first trimester, like after the first trimester, I think it's human enough mm-hmm. that I don't think we should be killing it. So yeah. Right. You, you still and in order to make about. that position law, you have to overturn Roe v. Wade. And Casey. Oh, to make which position law? To 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 ban abortion after the first trimester requires overturning okay. Roe and Casey, and Doe. Oh, okay. So there couldn't be. So, so people, you, yeah, you, people will say they're pro-choice, but but only for the first trimester. Yeah. If they actually want that to become policy, they should be working with us. So then you'd actually have to overturn those laws altogether. You couldn't just bring in or some, some kind of like legislation that would just kind of supersede those, but you'd actually have to overturn them altogether. So the, the question of when a legislative body can overturn the Supreme Court is very mm-hmm. complicated and tricky and has not historically been attempted very often. Um, certainly you can't do it at the state level because Supreme, federal Supreme Court decisions supersede state law. The only right. real way anything like that could be accomplished would be at the federal level, and even then, it's very tricky. If you're if you're not going for the full constitutional amendment, right. when can Congress court-proof its own laws? <laughs> is right. uh, is a really interesting academic question, but not one that I'm really qualified to opine on. Okay, so that's Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. Then, then we we of course come to Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Which I've I've heard people say that Roe v. Wade is not the law of the land. Planned Parenthood v. Casey is actually the law of the land. How does Planned Parenthood v. Casey work then? Like what what certain things in Roe v. Wade did Planned Parenthood v. Casey contramand or contravene is the word you're looking for? Or contravene. Okay, yeah, thank you. (laughs) Contraband. You got anything? Uh, Yeah, no, 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 no. no. I said uh, contramand uh, with an M is is what I said. Oh, oh. Oh, yeah, contravene is probably the word I'm looking for. So. Contraband. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not talking anything illegal here. <laughs> um, okay, so um, I, I think what I just said earlier about Casey being an amendment to Roe is a, is a really good uh, way to think about it uh, that I okay. just made up, but I'm sure someone else has thought of that before. Right. Um, okay, no, that's fine. So it, did, it doesn't completely 
reverse or replace Roe, but it's an appendage to Roe. Um, and essentially, okay. it's, it's the trimester framework is abandoned in favor of this idea that pro-life regulations are available at any point in pregnancy that you can ban abortion um, after the point of viability whenever the hell that is uh, right. <laughs> with exceptions for health whatever that is going back mm. to Doe um, right. but what, what Casey really did was open the door for things like informed consent parental mm. consent um, and that these, these sort of incremental measures that have dramatically decreased uh, the abortion mm. rate in, um, in the states that have implemented them so uh, yeah. That's that's Casey in a nutshell. They um, they introduced this concept of an undue burden, uh, another term that people aren't really sure what it means. Um, right. uh, the court found uh, last year, sadly, that um, holding abortion centers to surgical standards is apparently an undue burden, um, mm. which is terrifying. Um, right. But yeah, so that's mm. that's Casey and. Pro-life organizations at the time had hoped that Casey would would reverse Roe, so it was a disappointment at the time. But it did open the door uh, for some of these state-level regulations uh, that have uh, become fairly successful over uh, over the decades since. Um, yeah. The other the other thing in Casey that I think is really important, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go feminist on you for a second. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> There's this. I can handle it. There's this passage in Casey that says, we realize Roe has been really controversial, but we can't back off. We can't back down now because women rely on abortion. They have a reliance interest, and Roe v. Wade is the reason that women are succeeding in the workforce. Mm. That makes me so angry yeah. <laughs> I, I mean as, as a successful professional woman that makes me so angry that the supreme court of the united states attributes my success not to my hard work but to my ability to kill babies mm. that's sick um, yeah it just makes me so mad we actually had um had a hashtag a while ago um it must have been the anniversary of Casey. I'm always doing things on anniversaries. Um, and the hashtag was no reliance. Um, ba- basically, with pro-life women saying we do not rely on abortion um, on Twitter, which was which was pretty pretty cool. Um, yeah, um, but there, unfortunately, uh, feminist groups have taken this incredibly unfeminist notion and doubled down on it. And in, in that, um, in the whole women's health case, the, um, the one striking down abortion uh, center regulations, uh, there were, uh, there was an amicus brief uh, from professional women who'd had abortions saying, oh yeah, yeah, reliance interests. We have to sacrifice <laughs> our baby. Like it, and they were, and they were yeah. selling it as empowering and it just blew my mind. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. I guess um, that, that's something that I hear from, from abortion choice advocates too, is that abortion is necessary for women to be able to compete with men, not just in the workforce, but in life too, because she has wants and desires and interests, which having children would be able to get in the way for. Um, yeah, so that, which is an absolutely argument an argument for infanticide. Can we, can we well, just right. say that? <laughs> I mean, they, well, yeah, they don't exactly. realize it, but it absolutely, like a newborn infant is far more demanding than a fetus. Far right. more demanding. <laughs> so. 
Yeah. So and yeah, and, and so and not, you not know, to mention once they start crawling. Oh my God! And and walking. Right. Jeez, you yeah. got to follow them around everywhere. Bet better move up that cutoff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, thank, yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's that mother whose uh, whose whose kid like fell into the gorilla pen. Uh, you know, R.I.P. Harambe. Uh, <laughs> you know, and they ended up having to, having to kill the gorilla. Uh, oh, what's that? I said too soon, Clinton. Oh yeah, sorry. no. I, I have a friend. I have a friend uh, named Elijah who also has a, a podcast, and he was heavily affected by the death of Harambe. So I try to be sensitive when I talk about that. Um, a, a fetus wouldn't have slipped through his mother's grasp and, and fell into a right. grave. So, so yeah, right. I, I'm definitely tracking with you there that children outside the womb are, are much greater burden than they are inside the womb. But you know, uh, you know, obviously, I, I as a as a pro-life Christian do not mean burden in the same way that, that an abortion choice person means. But I'm using no, I mean, we're, we're both being um, facetious here. Um, well, right, yeah. So, again, yeah, it's, it's so, a matter of taking pro-choice statements and following them to their logical conclusions and seeing the right. horrific results every yeah. time. Right, um, and so, yeah, so you know, if, you think, if you think of the unborn embryo or fetus as a burden, just wait until it's born. So, yeah, so mm-hmm. as you're saying, that, that's an excuse for actually kill, killing the child up until, like, he's out of the house, you know? <laughs> right. So. I mean, oh my God, teenagers, jeez. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, now, okay. Um, so I, okay. Oh, it, it reminds me of an old uh, political cartoon um, where the you know at, at the top it says, um, "When does human life begin?" Um, and uh, a priest says, "At conception," and a judge says, "At birth," and a 16-year-old kid says, "When you get your driver's license." <laughs> <laughs> oh, again, the subjectivity of, of right. language is an issue. Yeah, here. Uh, right. Yeah, and there, there's a you know there, there's a, a good study on that too. Is that you know obviously that's meant for humor, but that just shows that, uh, that a lot of humor relies on on logical fallacies because obviously they're they're mm-hmm. equivocating on the term life. Right. Um, so yeah, and but that's that's unfortunately an equivocation that abortion choice people make without any hint of irony or humor. Yeah. Because All they'll time. say, oh. You know, science has not determined when life begins. Well, it has biologically, uh, and that's the sense of life at which we're talking about here. Right, because any other so, sense of life is bringing in supernatural mm-hmm. concepts that don't belong in our laws. Right, right. <laughs> we have to in church and state. Um, yeah. So. Okay. I, so. I uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, that's fine. Okay, so uh, I do have a caller. So. Oh. Yeah, so uh, we'll go ahead and switch over to the caller now. So, caller, go ahead and state your name, if you would, please, and then your question that you have for Kelsey. Yeah, so my name's Austin. Um, I actually met Kelsey at the March for Life. I don't know if she remembers me. Hey, but, Austin! Um, were, were, we at have... the, uh, were we at the Beltway Right to Life thing? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Hey, Austin, what's up? Yeah, so um, I hear you guys talking a lot of law, and... Um, I'm going to just change the subject a little bit, but um, every time I talk to somebody who's pro-choice, I always get the, uh, I always get the, 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 uh, they always say, oh, but pro-life people don't only care about the fetus. They don't Mm. care about the person after they're born. And I always get frustrated with that. Mm-hmm. But I don't really have really good uh, examples of what um, what what how pro-life people care about uh, others outside the womb because 
as I think about it, it's more of that, like, there's a bunch of other uh, groups outside of pro-life that do stuff to help uh, mm-hmm. kids and mothers outside the womb. So sure. if you could expand on that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that that is a really frustrating accusation because, you know, pro-life people are basically half the American adult population. And the idea that we don't volunteer for anything other than pro-life is absurd. We just aren't wearing like a pro-life banner on our sleeves or something to say, hey, we're we're at the food bank. And by the way, we're (laughs) pro-life like that. That would be if, if we did do that we would be criticized for being obnoxious and shoving our beliefs down people's throats. Uh, so we really can't win. Right. Um, but of, yes, of course, pro-life people care about babies outside the womb and families generally and charity generally. We're, we are half the general population is what I always try to remind people when they say things that are so ridiculous. It's like we're half the population. Um, and yeah, so I, but in addition to that, you can point people to their pregnancy care centers. You can point people to fundwomenshealth.com, which we were talking about earlier. Um, you can uh, uh, point people to um, consistent life resources. The consistent life movement is um, a combination of pro-life on abortion and advocacy against war and the death penalty and euthanasia and things of that nature. I actually just got out of a a consistent life uh, conference last weekend, which was really informative. Um, So there there definitely are groups out there that are doing these things. And really what it comes down to is people first conflating pro-life with Republican uh, and second conflating uh, support for babies outside the womb with support of specific government policies. Um, People may have great uh, charitable causes, um, but be working on them privately and not lobbying government for particular solutions. They might just be one-on-one in their community helping people. Um, I think that's totally valid. (laughs) Um, There are definitely generous libertarians out there. And then on the liberal side, there are, of course, pro-life liberals. There are pro-life Democrats. Uh, and a lot of what is happening, and this is, this is really disturbing to me, um, but you know, they have this narrative, we don't care about anyone outside the womb, and then they enforce it by kicking pro-life organizations out of charitable things. Um, the, the example that immediately comes to mind is... Um, Rehumanize International um, sought to co-sponsor several anti-war rallies over the summer, and they were kicked out for being anti-abortion. So on the one hand, they're being told you're not doing enough um, for people outside the womb, and then when they try to, they are harassed and kicked out because they're pro-life. It's absolutely sick. Um, that that's what they're doing, but that's what they're doing. They're manipulating the narrative. Um, so, so educating people about those kinds of things, that, that would be my answer essentially. It would be first of all to point out the things that we're doing, point out we're such a large group, it's impossible for us not to be doing these things, uh, and then point to some of the ways that charitable pro-life work is being suppressed. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I know that was a long answer. I do have a tendency to ramble, but I I appreciate your question. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> okay, thank you. 
<laughs> yeah, thank you, uh, Austin, for calling. That's something that I found to be really kind of ridiculous, too, is, you know, it's not just with the anti-war rally, but then you have, like, the Women's March and the March for Science, mm -hmm. in which case they were, you know, told that they couldn't be co-sponsors because they were pro-life. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that was... Right. You don't care about women. <laughs> don't you dare care about women. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're going to make sure you don't care about women so that we can keep that narrative going. It's just, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just like, it, it defies logical explanation. You it's know, it's that, very it, logical. It's very self-interested. Well, yeah, no, yeah, I guess, I guess there's that. It's just, it's the whole damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, you know. Exactly. Uh, uh, all right, but yeah, no, so that's, yeah, great um, response there. Okay, And great so, question, Austin, thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you again, Austin, for calling in. And um, again, please feel free to, to call in if you have uh, questions for Kelsey, that's why she's here. Um, <laughs> it, it's been very rare when a, when a Supreme Court decision had been overturned. And one thing that usually comes to mind is uh, Dred Scott v. Stanford. Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, which was obviously a very racist law that was passed and was eventually overturned, despite it being mm -hmm. a Supreme Court decision. And so when you talk about, for example, Planned Parenthood v. Casey had that statement about stereotypes that we can't overturn Roe v. Wade because then people would lose confidence in the Supreme Court. Well, mm -hmm. you know, when, they when, lost confidence uh, in the Supreme Court when they decided Roe v. Wade. Um, well, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I have I have very little confidence in our Supreme Court anymore. Um, yeah. But you know, it's just this whole thing about stereotypes too. Is that you know, mm -hmm. if if a law is recognized as unjust, then there's no reason to keep it mm -hmm. around. You know, it seems like you would risk people losing confidence in the Supreme Court if you kept an unjust law just for the sake of keeping it because the Supreme Court you originally think? voted on it. You know, you it's, yeah, it's, it, seems, um, it seems like the more respectable thing to do would be to overturn it if it is unjust, you know? Right. So let's, let's go back and have a little history lesson because the Supreme Court did not, in fact, overturn Dred Scott. Dred Scott oh. went away because we had a civil war and then uh, the 14th Amendment and the – well, sorry, thir the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution mm -hmm. were enacted. The 13th is, is – uh, basically a direct overturning of Dred Scott and banning of, uh, of slavery in the U.S. Uh, so this okay. was not a judicial resolution. That was a battle. Oh, all right. Um, okay. So it, it is, in fact, very rare uh, for the Supreme Court hmm. to reverse itself, particularly on issues of this magnitude. Um, okay. One, one uh, per perhaps a better comparison um, would be um, Plessy v. Ferguson, which is the pro-segregation decision was overturned uh, in Brown v. Board. Um, that was an instance um, where the Supreme Court overturned itself. Um, okay. But a surprising number of bad Supreme Court decisions have never been actually overruled. They're just considered to be so obviously bad that we assume the court wouldn't enforce them now, or the states are no longer um, enforcing those kinds of laws anyway, so it's moot. And a, a good example of that is the, uh, the force of sterilization uh, cases. Um, that, that was a fad you know, during, the, uh, um, during the original eugenicist era um, of sterilizing people who um, were quote-unquote feeble-minded um, mm. which is just a fancy way of saying you are black and or poor. Um, mm. And right. uh, there, was, there was a Supreme Court case called Buck v. Bell, um, which 
uh, sanctioned that practice, uh, and uh, Justice Holmes uh, included the memorable line, uh, three generations of imbeciles is enough, uh, because mm. the, um, the woman in that case who, um, who was sterilized, um, they claimed was a third um, – well, they, sorry, she had, she already had a daughter. So the, they, the claim was that her, her mother was an imbecile and she was an imbecile and her daughter was an imbecile, none of which was true. Um, right. They were just poor and uneducated um, and had some other horrible circumstances going on that I, I won't really get into. But um, so that, that case, sanctioning sterilization, shockingly enough, was quoted with approval in Roe v. Wade. Very few people know that. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, remains on the books, has never actually been mm. overturned. It's okay. just assumed that, um, if that issue were to recur, uh, that the court would reverse itself, but it hasn't come up because, um, um, activists were able to get those laws repealed, um, mm. in the States. So, yeah, the, you can't count on the court to do the right thing. That's that's the sad yeah. truth of the matter, um, right? And yeah. oh, reversals are very rare. Okay. Reversals of, of precedent are are very rare, uh, right. particularly when it comes to to the quote unquote hot button issues. There have been yeah. fluctuations on things like um, you know, the exact parameters of campaign finance issues, and and there's been fluctuation in the abortion realm. You know, c- comparing. Uh, Roe and Casey and that sort of thing, but there has not, there have been very few um, serious 180 degree turns. Plessy versus Plessy v. Ferguson on the one hand, um, and Brown v. Board on the other is a big example. Uh, and then the uh, reversal of uh, Lawrence v. Texas um, would be another. Uh, those are those are the ones that come to mind, um, but it is not a common occurrence. Okay, so then. In, in your opinion, then, would it would the better strategy then be to to try and get a, a pro-life amendment through into the Constitution that says life begins at fertilization, rather than trying to get these other court cases like uh, Casey Doe and Roe uh, overturned? I think we have to do all of it um, because you know, I mean, get, getting a constitutional amendment is an extremely difficult process. Uh, right. So yeah. we, um, and there's there's no guarantees to any of it. So pursue all of it together at the same time and whichever avenue crosses the finish line first wins. <laughs> uh, and that includes, <laughs> right. that includes non, um, you know, that, that includes things outside of government processes altogether. That includes things like um, starving abortion clinics of clientele by uh, investing in pregnancy centers. Um, right. And it includes reducing unplanned pregnancies, same result. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. You know, all, all of, I, I really do believe that the pro-life movement works best when all of these different components come together as a cohesive whole. The legislative groups, the election-oriented groups, the woman care groups, the post-abortion groups, find your niche and stick with it, and mm-hmm. it'll all come together. You know, I, I hesitate to say this because it, it can often come across as, as a bit arrogant because obviously I'm pro-life and I don't agree with the abortion decision, but I, I've never seen an argument that justifies ha- having an abortion. And the, I mean, the reason I say that is because, 
you know, I'm not some like upstart who, who, you know, has just gone into the movement. Like I'm well read on the issue. I've read, you know, the thinkers and, uh, you know, the best arguments and articles. Uh, and I've also mm-hmm. read the worst and the low hanging fruit. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when I, when I say something like, you know, the, the, I've never seen a good argument to justify abortion. I, I don't say that as someone who just dismisses all arguments out of hand, because I do interact with them and take them seriously. And so mm-hmm. I want people to, to know that, you know, I, I also take pro-choice people seriously, and I take their arguments and views seriously, too. And so I mean, that's why... Yeah. If you had found a pro-choice argument convincing, you'd be pro-choice. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Cause, yeah. Because I'm not I'm not pro pro-life because I was raised Christian. I was raised Christian, but uh, I I was never you know I never heard a pro-life sermon growing up. I never found myself in a situation in which I would have considered it because uh, you know I was a a good kid growing up. Like I wasn't out there philandering with a bunch of girls in high school or getting anyone pregnant. I was you know I kept my self uh, mainly. And so it, it was just n- nothing that I ever had to face. Uh, you know, I didn't become uh, pro-life until I had to do a, a speech on it in a, in a college class. And, uh, and through my studies, I was, I'm sorry. I said, I don't think I knew that. That's interesting. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's a little bit of a, little bit of a, of a long story, but, but basically uh, I, I became pro-life when I had to do a speech on it in a speech class in, in college. And I chose abortion just, just out of thin air. Uh, because it was a controversial topic, and uh, you know, it wasn't you know, it wasn't an emotional transformation for me. It wasn't because of the abortion victim photography that I saw. You know, it was just the cold hard facts that convinced me to be pro-life and that convinced me to speak out about it because it's not something that I felt comfortable just allowing to continue without me trying mm-hmm. to trying to put an end to it. So I just want I, I want anyone out there listening to know that I've, I've put in the requisite. Uh, research on the topic uh, to, to to make that claim. I'm not being arrogant when I say it because I I, I believe in giving people their due if they make uh, you know good arguments or compelling points. And and so it it doesn't surprise me then that there are no good reasons for why the Supreme Court would have abortion legal. But it does kind of surprise me that the argumentation is so poor from the Supreme Court because there are sophisticated arguments out there. From pro-choice people, so it does surprise me that the Supreme Court would, ri- would rely on really bad arguments for their position. And so I, I had, I also had a reason for saying all that as well, because in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, there's kind of a famous what they call the mystery package uh, passage. In oh which, my gosh, the mystery in which, of life. Right, oh, and so, in which the, <laughs> right, in which the, the 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 Supreme Court essentially said that it's none of our business tell you what counts as life. It's up to each woman individually to determine her own meaning of life and her own place in the universe and that kind of thing. Uh, and so we're not going to, you know, make abortion uh, illegal because it's up to each individual woman to make those determinations. And so, again, like we talked about earlier, that kind of argument also justifies infanticide and it justifies, you know, killing her child at any age because, mm-hmm. you know, what if she, what if she honestly doesn't believe that a person becomes a living human until you get to be, you know, 21 years old. Well, then how is the Supreme Court going to argue that she's in the wrong with that mystery pa- uh, passage hanging over their heads from Planned Parenthood v. Casey? And it's it's funny, too, and I've seen this not just in the Supreme Court opinion, but just in, you know, interactions with people and debates with people. This rarely articulated, because it sounds dumb when you articulate it, but this belief that women's thoughts are magic that I can by wanting the pregnancy transform the substance of the pregnancy to be a person like it's again it sounds crazy when you say it out loud but I 
an incredible number of people have that belief um, that it really that not, not only that women just should be able to do what they want, but that what women want changes material reality. Mm. And right. as cool as it would be to have that superpower, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my you mean, uh, aren't magic. <laughs> just not. Right? You mean you mean everyone's not like uh, like all women aren't like uh, Scarlet Witch? Uh, again that's one that's also one of the reasons why i don't have much confidence in the supreme court is because their arguments to legalize abortion were so poor that even abortion choice people spoke out against it of course they're not standing in line to get it overturned because of the poor reasoning but they they are they are honest about yeah that was that was those are really bad arguments and you know some some have just called it you know legislating from the bench and bad legislating and so, so that doesn't fill me with confidence that uh, that the Supreme Court has, uh, you know, has the truth in mind when they make these decisions. Because at any given time, they could make a decision if they're more interested in making history than in sticking to the truth. You know, they could argue in favor of of any position because uh, they're obviously not afraid of being seen as bad arguers. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> well. I mean, it's about getting the right people on the bench. If it's going to be legislating from the bench, then we need to vote with them in mind because we are basically electing them by proxy. Right. That, and yeah. that's why so many people went for Trump. And I get it. I I couldn't stomach him, but I get it. Yeah. Like I said, I, I, I totally respect someone's decision who voted for Trump just because they wanted to keep uh, Hillary out of out of office because having Hillary Clinton as, as president would have set the pro-life movement back several years. And so, mm. uh, you know, I, I may not, I may not be in favor of Trump as president, but I, I'm not shedding any tears that he was the one elected. Mm. Um, Austin so. just messaged me. He said, "Talk about the James Franco video. I haven't seen it oh, yet. Actually, yeah, that's actually. That, I've seen that it's bouncing around Facebook, but <laughs> I, the last couple of weeks for me have just been so crazy. I'm, I've been traveling a ton. I have so much work to catch up on, and yeah. any free time I have, I just want to sleep. Yeah, <laughs> so well, no, that, that's I will a... get to that video at some point, but maybe you have some thoughts on it, Clinton. Oh, I oh, do I? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I appreciate I appreciate that, Austin, because uh, that actually popped into my mind as we were as we were talking here. Yeah, and I was going to actually ask you if you'd seen it. Uh, basically, you, you know who James Franco is, right? Right, he's an actor, I think. Yeah, he's an actor. He okay. was a Green Goblin in the in the uh, in the first three Spider-Man movies, and he's done some other work. But uh, I'm a nerd, so I don't know what else. <laughs> I don't know what else. Oh, he was in that movie uh, This Is the End, which was about like the rapture, and he played himself. Uh, I believe he played himself, um, which is a really funny movie. It's it's kind of sacrilegious. I, I think so, I saw so a bit of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was really funny as a conservative. That's the one where like myself, the Backstreet but... Boys are in heaven. Uh, yeah, I think so. Something like okay. that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's totally not biblically accurate, obviously, because it's a Hollywood film. But but I, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, but but anyway, uh, yeah. So James Franco is an actor and he apparently has uh, as a friend who's a philosopher. And they started this new YouTube series called Philosophy Time. And oh. this is their third episode. And they it's only like a five minute video. So it won't take up much of your time uh, if you if you do. Uh, watch it. But basically, they went to this uh, professor of philosophy at Princeton, whose name is Elizabeth Harmon. And why they wouldn't go to Peter Singer, I have no idea. Uh, He would have given them a much better argument. But instead, they went to Elizabeth Harmon. And here was her her argument on your show is probably uh, not the best PR, but I'm just speculating. That's probably true, too. (laughs) 
Yeah, but okay. So so Elizabeth Harmon's argument is basically is that your being a person is totally dependent on your growing up to be a person. At, at any given time, the fetus may be uh, a person or it may not be. She says that there are two different types of fetuses. Uh, and, and she calls them, I think she calls them like two different kinds of animal or two different kinds of being or something. There's, you know, the fetuses who are not persons and fetuses who are persons. Now you, Kelsey, and she, you know, uh, said this to James and, and his friend Elliot, his philosophy friend, uh, you were once a fetus. The fact that you... Uh, actualized your future and became a person means that you were a person as that fetus. But if okay. a fetus doesn't, but if a fetus doesn't have that future, then it's not a person. So if if they die by miscarriage or if they die because their mom aborts them, they are not a fetus because they don't they didn't actualize that future. That's basically her argument. Because so, she, she says, so a woman who's like going back and forth trying contemplating what to do about her unplanned pregnancy is pregnant with yeah. like Schrodinger's fetus. Well, pretty much. Yeah. No, that that's that's one that's one uh, that's one explanation I heard of it. It's it's Schrodinger's fetus. It is or it is not a person. Uh, it is and it is not a person if the mother is, is deciding. Wow. And no, even even James Franco, like you could see his reactions to it. Like his, his facial expressions were like contorting the more she talked. And he pinpointed one of the fatal flaws of her argument, because he just asked a very simple question, well, or, or he made a simple statement, he says, well, you could only really know that in hindsight. Right. So, yeah, so James Franco himself, I don't know how philosophically minded he is, but even he could, could see a fatal flaw with her position in that Good you job, can't know. James Franco. Yeah, exactly. You, you can't know looking forward which fetus is a person or which fetus is not a person. And, and so this is a bizarre way to kind of take the argument from potentiality to try and argue that you're not a person if you don't actualize this, this future. And, and so, you know, the problem is, is that, uh, you know, looking at the, the argument from potentiality is that every fetus has the potential to grow into an adult. If a woman mm-hmm. has an abortion, then she is deliberately cutting that future off. And it, I don't see why her deliberately cutting the fetus off from that future would uh, would in any way determine the moral status of that fetus. And so, yeah, like even even uh, Bishop Robert Barron, who's ordinarily like the nicest guy, takes people seriously. Like he even released a statement saying, this has got to be the stupidest argument ever put forth <laughs> in public sphere. So, yeah, so that's, that's wow. the gist of her argument. And so, yeah, and so like even in the video, they had like little arrows going in a circle because even Nick could tell that this is, uh, cir- you know, circular reasoning that, you, you know, you're, you're, you're not a person uh, because your mom aborted you and your mom aborted you because you're not a person, basically. Right, so, right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's worth watching. Uh, it's only, like I said, five minutes long. It's worth watching if you need a laugh. But yeah, if, you're, if you're looking for good arguments, and from I don't a, from know a if professor, I should laugh or cry. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, seriously. And, and, you know, she's a professor of philosophy at Princeton, no less. And she has probably the worst argument I've ever heard uh, for abortion. So, wow. yeah, so that's the gist, uh, that's the gist of, her, uh, of her argument in that video with James Franco and Elliot uh, Michelson, I think is the guy's last name. So that was, uh, wow. that was quite a thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so we're Thank you coming for, up uh, here. Thank summation of that. Oh yeah, no, um, yeah no, I guess no we problem. only have a few minutes. Um, yeah, I just wanted you to feel my pain, uh, like, like I've been feeling it. So, <laughs> yeah. Before uh, before we close this out, though, you you have written a book, and I didn't want to leave here without at least oh. mentioning and telling people how to how to how to get it if they're interested. Oh in reading my gosh, it. that book is so old. I have. <laughs> well, it is, um, but I figured. It's a short story. It's a novella. I have yeah. not promoted it in a long time because I. Oh. It, it's sort of one of those things like where 
you know, if you've matured in your writing, you look back at your earlier work and cringe. <laughs> but, oh, okay. Um, well, we, we it, is, not- it is still available on Amazon. If you Google my name, it's this little book called Cultivating Weeds. It's a, um, it's basically science fiction about artificial wombs and what effect that would have on uh, the abortion issue. So it's an interesting little thought experiment. Um, but um, yeah, well, uh, can, well Josh you can get Rob- it on Kindle. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Josh Brom is, you know, praising it as, as something that, that might, you know, at, at least affect the abortion uh, debate in some way. So, yeah, um, p- pick it up. If, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it's not very long. Like you said, it's a, it's a short novel. But, yeah, um, if you're interested, then by all means, it's yeah. out there on, on Amazon. So, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've been working on some other projects since then, um, just outside of Secular for Life, um, create, creatively um, in – my extremely limited free time and trying to do some uh, some more creative works. Um, one yeah. of which is a screenplay that a uh, enterprising uh, film student, who's also the president of his uh, Students for Life group on campus, uh, would like to direct. So fingers oh. crossed, we are trying to make that happen. Um, it's probably too early for me to be talking about it in that public forum, but oh, well. <laughs> I'm going to because I'm really excited about it. Um, but that that is a couple years off. Um, we are okay. still in the in the budgeting stage. We haven't cast anybody, um, but we are working on it. Yeah, so uh, be on the lookout for that. <laughs> okay, so yeah, we only have we have about five minutes left. So um, so once again, where can people find you online? Secular Pro Life is very easy to find. You can just search those words on Facebook, and you will find it. Um, we are on Twitter also at Secular Pro Life. Um, no hyphen. Um, and you can go to secularprolife.org, again, no hyphen, um, and find everything you need. Um, and we, as I said, we have a blog. Um, that's blog.secularprolife.org. We also, you know, of course, share those blog posts on social media, along with other articles and graphics that uh, strike our fancy. So that is the best uh, way to get in touch with us is uh, via social media. Uh, or you can email me if you have a specific question that for some reason we didn't get to today. Um, you can email me at info at secularprolife.org. Yeah. So once again, thank you for, for listening to our podcast. And Austin, again, thank you for calling in for, with the question. And uh, Kelsey, thank you again for joining me on my show. I really appreciated you coming in and sharing your, your expertise with us. I appreciate you having me. This is a fun time. Uh, whenever you need me back, I will be back. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely keep that in mind for the future. And so I'll put the uh, the books that we mentioned and I'll, I'll try to Google that uh, Justice Ginsburg quote and put it in the in the notes for the the show as well um, for those interested in more information on that. So uh, if you appreciated the information that we talked about here today, we would just ask that you share this around uh, Twitter, Facebook, whatever you happen to have an online presence. Uh, Feel free to rate or review us on our Facebook page uh, or on iTunes. And now this is a, a weekly podcast that we do, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. Now, as Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. That's the Life Training Institute website. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you'd like to donate to this podcast specifically, you can indicate that in the notes section as well. Donations are also tax deductible. 
Now, in two days' time, on Sunday, uh, Nathan and Aaron are going to be joining me again, and we're also going to be joined by George Delgado, who is a doctor who has uh, reversed the abortion pill. So we're going to be talking about abortion pill reversal on Sunday's program. So be sure to tune in for that. On behalf of our program, Pro-Life Thinking, I'd again love to thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.